Welcome to St. James. Glad you guys are here. Uh, welcome to everybody who's watching on the live stream as well. Uh, a couple of announcements that we want to emphasize here. Uh, read through the announcements on your own, and uh, let me point out a couple things. First of all, next Sunday, uh, the 19th, uh, we're not going to have Bible study or Sunday school. Instead, after the first worship service, we're going to meet downstairs for uh, family breakfast which will go until the second worship service. Also in the second worship service, the kids are going to uh, sing a song for us. That'll be nice. Uh, check out, I, I really want you to check out the Madison County Children's Ministry update um, on the back page. Um, we still need a lot for the kids. So we've, we've gone from just the Glen Carbon schools to now Madison County schools, which is a huge leap in scope. And so uh, we need more uh, help with that. If you have been reluctant or unable to sign up online, Sandy has brought uh, her tablet with her today, and she can sign you up. If you can read through this when you get a chance here, and if you can help out, speak with Sandy after, after the service, and she can get you hooked up with a specific thing to help out with. Uh, so uh, no, uh, no, pre, no prayer meeting tonight at 530. We, we have to cancel that. Um, and no, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? a youth confirmation after the worship service today because we're going to have our annual congregational meeting at 1130, uh, which is going to be uh, voting on the budget and the officers for next year. If you aren't here, I'm talking now to the people at home, uh, you should be able to, we're getting them a Google form, right? It's going to be live streamed and then we should have Google forms to you so that you can vote on stuff as well. So that'll be at 1130. So, uh, a little bit after the service ends this morning. I think that's all I have for everything else is on this week. Uh, men's Bible study, women's Bible study, youth group. Um, okay, I think that's all I have. Stand with me and let's pray. And then we'll begin worship. Father, we need you to come. Uh, come we need you to come and meet with us. We need you to send your son Jesus back to renew all things. Uh, there's uh, thousands... As, probably underselling it. There's millions of things wrong that we want you to fix and that we've tried to fix and we can't. And so uh, come, Lord Jesus, and make yourself real and do a mighty work. And then come, return, uh, show yourself again. Appear again to, to renew all things. Uh, we need that desperately. 
Father, we're praying that you would do this for your glory and for our good. And we pray this morning in our worship service as we gather around your word and as we worship you in song and as we gather around your sacrament, that you would give us a foretaste of that and fuel to live our lives in the reality of your son's kingdom. And it's in his name that we pray, amen. Let's continue in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's confess our sin to God. O Lord, a great God, all holy, Father most gracious, filled with mercy and steadfast love, we are embarrassed to come before you, for we have rebelled against your wisdom and have gotten into trouble, for we have rejected your fatherly guidance and have gotten lost altogether, and therefore we are embarrassed. To you belongs righteousness, O Lord, and to us confusion of face. O Lord, great God, all holy, Father most gracious, filled with mercy and steadfast love, incline your ear to our troubles. Hear us when we pour out our sorrows before you. Forgive us, not on the ground of our own righteousness, but on the ground of your great mercy, on the ground of your great mercy in the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray, for he is our Savior and the mediator of the covenant of grace. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the gospel of Christ from 1 John. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven on account of Jesus' name. Amen. Please stay standing for the first hymn. read Psalm 85 together. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, 
to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. The Old Testament reading is from Zephaniah chapter 3. Key theme here I want you to notice is God is once again living back with his people. In the days of Zephaniah, God was not living, they, they weren't, God was not living in the temple. It's not until Jesus returns that God comes back home. And it's weird for us because we're just used to as believers that God always dwells with us. I mean, Jesus promised, look, I'll be with you always to the end of the age. It's not, what, it's not the scenario that they're, leaving, that, that, that they're living in. God has abandoned his temple, his temple and they're craving for him to come back home. Zephaniah sees a day when that'll be real. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said in Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Epistles from uh, Philippians chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, Paul says. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Please stand. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke chapter 7. The disciples of John the Baptist reported all these things to him. Uh, All the things that they're reporting is a bunch of miracles that Jesus did. He just in this chapter had raised the widow's son, healed the centurion's servant. The disciples of John reported all these things back to John the Baptist. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, said, sent them to the Lord, to Jesus, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. Would you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. This is the gospel of the Lord. Okay, you can be seated. I'm going to talk, what I want to do this morning is focus on, uh, let's see here, verses 18 through 23. Pastor Lang focused last week on John the Baptist and a lot of what was, this was, this was not his text, but the text, verses 24 through the end. And I would just say, if, if, if you want to explore more there, you can go back and listen to Pastor Lang's sermon. Uh, there's a whole lot more to explore with John the Baptist as well. I want to talk about the first, uh, what is that, six verses, 18 through 23. And w- w- what I want to do this morning is, so I-, I noticed this a couple years ago, that Advent, the season of Advent, okay, so just hang with me here. Advent is the season where we're like hoping for and looking towards Jesus fixing everything, making all things new. And we, we, you know, we can do it from an Old Testament perspective you know, Jesus hasn't come yet. They're waiting for the Messiah to come and looking for him. And that's why we do this before Christmas. We can do it from our perspective, wanting Jesus to come back and return and rule here on earth and fix things. We can do it from a more immediate perspective, like, God, I need you to fix my circumstances. Come and, and, and rescue me now. Um, I found when I was focusing on that, that I ended up thinking quite a bit about doubting, about doubting God. And I'll tell you why. So just, just hang with me for two seconds while I explain this. There's two things going on in Scripture. There's this sort of advent reality where we believe that when Jesus died and rose from the dead, he made all things new and is now in the process of fixing all things and is going to return to consummate that and make everything perfect the way he, way he designed it to be. You know, we believe that. If any person is in Christ, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, those of you who are in Christ, you are new creation. You know how powerful that language is? New creation, that's biblical language for the last day when God makes everything new. That's who you are. But then you have this other part in Scripture where things are broken and aren't going right. We talk about that a lot, you know. But the thing about that part in Scripture that discusses how things are broken and we're fallen and we're trapped, you know, we still struggle with sin. And the thing about that is that we're commanded to be content. In that, you know, Paul says at the end of Philippians 4, right after the text we just read, um, that I've learned, you know, so Paul's in prison at the time, and he says, I've learned even in prison, you know, he's going to die in prison, Paul is. I've learned even in prison, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, I've learned even in prison to be content. Okay, so here's my problem. This is not my problem. My, my problem is not that Jesus is going to make all things new but they're not new yet. That's true enough. My problem is, is that Jesus is going to make all things new and holds that out to us as a goal that we should pray for and hope for and long for. But then at the same time, he says, be content. 
with the broken, screwed up mess that you have in your life now. That's, that's my problem, all right? Is that Venn diagram, new creation here, my world here, and in the middle is this little section where I'm supposed to be content with things not being good. What, and I don't know how to do that. I, I struggle with like how to live a life where I'm hoping that, things will, that God will fix things, but at the same time being content that God's not fixing certain things in my life. That's how do I do that? It's a question. And, and I found, by the way, that when I grapple with this, and when you guys have things that you're grappling with and you come to me, it almost always circles around that little space in the Venn diagram where you're supposed to be content, but you're also, you know that things are screwed up and you're hoping that Jesus fix them. And how do you do that? How do you pray God fix these things and simultaneously be content? Almost all the, almost everything, you know, so I'll give you some examples. Somebody comes to me and they say, you know, a student will come to me and say, hey, I don't know, like, I, I want to be a better student and I want to get good grades. A lot of times this will happen close to like, you know, junior, senior year because you need to get a job or you need to get into college or something like that. And I've prayed and I've asked God to help me. And honestly, I've like, I've started studying. I've tried to study real hard, but my grades just aren't, like, they aren't good. I, you know, what do I do? And, and what that student is doing is they're trying to figure out where do I live in that tension? Like, I want good grades. I want to believe that Jesus wants me to do well. And at the same time, Am I supposed to be content with the fact that I'm not an A student? Like, how does that work? Should I, like, hope and pray to be an A student? Or do I need to be content that I'm not? You see what I'm saying? They're living in that little circle in there between new creation, perfect, it's happening now, and be content with the fact that it's not happening now. Same thing, same thing will happen. Same, basically the same thing with people's jobs. People will come to me and they'll say, hey, I got a question, Aaron. I get, like, I don't know if I should leave this job or not. Like, there's these people that I work with that aren't very nice and it just wears me out and I don't know if it fits me anymore, but that's this side of the equation, right? But like all jobs are kind of like that, I guess. And where can I go where I'm not going to be like, so the question is like, should I pray like God give me a better job or do I be content with the job that I have now? And they're trying to live in the center of that Venn diagram. One more example, then we'll move on. People come to me sometimes, this is a super common one, and they'll say, hey, there's something that's happened in my life and I really want to forgive this person here. I just feel like I, just need, I can't move forward without forgiving them. But they don't want forgiveness. Like, they don't want to talk to me about it. You see what they're doing? They're saying, like, I believe that in the, the new creation, God is going to reconcile relationships. He's going to make relationships new. But right now, this person here doesn't want to play ball. And What should I do? You know, do I try to, like, forgive them without their permission, which impossible, by the way. Like, do I try, like, how do I grow up? Like, do I pray that, like, God help them repent? Or do I just be, like, content with, well, like, it's not going to happen? That sort, that, that sort of thing that creates, like, what am I supposed to do here? God, where are you at? How do I worship you? How do I know what you want me to do? That space in there, that, like, I, always, I have not yet, the past few years, come to Advent and not grapple with that a little bit. For myself. So what I want to do today is I want to talk about John the Baptist doubts here because clearly he's doubting, right? He sends people to Jesus and says, are you the one who's to come or are we waiting for another? John the Baptist has doubts. How should we grapple with that? Now, disclaimer, I am not going to this morning, let me tell you what this sermon is not trying to do. This sermon is not trying to answer your doubts. I'm not, what I'm not, what I'm not going to do is say, you have doubts, let me solve those for you so you won't have doubts anymore. Because honestly, I can't do that. What the sermon is going to do, I hopefully, is what I, what I hope it does, is help us grapple biblically with our doubts. All right? And one of the things it's going to argue is this. Doubting is inevitable and is not necessarily bad. If, I, if you guys weren't trying to be religious now, and I can tell, by the way, some of you are addressed that you're trying to be religious if, if you weren't trying to be religious now, and I said to you, I said, how many of you doubt Christianity sometimes to some extent? And not every single person in here raised their hand. I would be very disappointed in those of you who are liars who had your hands down. Every single person doubts Christianity. Of course, I'm including the agnostics and atheists too, but I'm including you, Christians, in that as well, those of you who are Christians. 
you doubt Christianity. That is not necessarily a bad thing. It depends on what you do with those doubts. How can we grapple with our doubts? So every Christian should pray the prayer, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. The guy who wanted Jesus to heal his uh, servant or child, one of those two uh, people. Lord, I believe, help my, every single one of us, unless you're somehow completely sanctified, unless you're somehow like some sort of like ghost from the new creation that's sitting in the sanctuary, you have doubts. What do we do with those? Three things here in the text. The nature of biblical doubt, let's talk about that for a few minutes. The reality of Jesus's kingdom as an antidote to that. And then finally, the strategy of the cross. So let's talk about uh, verses 18 through 20 here. The nature of biblical doubt. I didn't really know what to call that, biblical doubt. Because I don't want to act like doubt is God's will for you. But I also want to say that doubt is something that we all do. And God can use our doubt for good things. You can't avoid it. You can't avoid it. The dream of 100% certainty, solving all the problems and being 100% completely convinced, that is an enlightenment myth that almost all sensible people have abandoned now. It's not going to happen in any sort of proofs. It's going to happen in relationship. I didn't, know, I didn't know what else to call that besides, you know, biblical doubt or good doubt. I don't know what's good. Give me a good idea for the next time I preach this sermon. Afterwards, not right now. So uh, verse 18, the disciples uh, reported to John all the things that Jesus had been doing. And John sends two of his disciples in verse 19 to say to Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? John the Baptist is not clear on whether Jesus is the coming one or if they need to wait for another. It's very, it's very interesting. Uh, the gospel writers don't frequently do this. Repeats this in verse 20. That's how important this question is for us to grapple with. It's repeated. It's not just that his servant said it, and then verse 20 says, and so they went and asked Jesus. They actually repeat the question again in verse 20. John the Baptist sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Let me argue for a few minutes that the way that John the Baptist is doubting is a good way, that, it's a good framework for, to help us doubt when you do doubt. Two things that John the Baptist does right here. First of all, he takes his doubts to Jesus. He goes to Jesus with his doubts. He has doubts about if Jesus is the Messiah or not, if Jesus is real or not, if God is actually at work in Jesus. So what does he do? He goes to Jesus and he asks him. Asks him. Here's what he doesn't do. He doesn't search down deep in himself. He doesn't scuba dive down into his heart to say, what do I really believe? Does this really make sense for me? Did I, did I really connect with Jesus when I spent time with him? Is this real? Look, there's nothing inside of John the Baptist's heart to give him any sort of indication of whether Christianity is real or not. There's nothing inside of your heart to give you any sort of indication of whether Christianity is real or not. This is just the way relationships work in general. You should never deep dive inside of yourself to figure out who you are. Who you are is always who you are outside of yourself with other people. So I'll give you an example. Some of you, well, all of you have done this. If you're older than like 12, you've done this. You've been aware, you've been subtly aware that somebody's upset with you. And you're like, I know who, some of you know, you know who they are. And you're like, I think they're upset with me. I, I, so I'm super like insecure, super uh, people pleaser. I will frequently say to Angela after church, I'll be like, I think so-and-so is upset with me. Or somebody, somebody emailed and said they want to talk to me. I think they're upset with me. I do this all the time. And then what do I do when that happens? What do I do when I think that one of you is like, the way that you said hello to me after church, I was like, ah, something wrong. Here's what I do. I deep dive. I'm like, did I say something? Did I, like, what did I, uh, there's a fly buzzing me here. Sorry. Just ignore that. Just, it's still there? Okay. You can come up and put, knock that out of the way here if you want to. Did I do something wrong? Okay, so then, then I'll replay I'll replay the past two months worth of conversations. Did I say something? Or maybe I didn't say something. Maybe I passed them in the narthex and, and they wanted to talk and I didn't notice it and I just walked by. And what I'm doing is I'm deep diving to figure out like, is this person like really upset with me or not? When pro move would be to say, hey, can we talk? I just, this might be stupid, but like, are you upset with me? That would be the pro move. You see what happens? Do I deep dive inside of myself to solve my doubts about relationship? No, you go to the person that you have the question about and you talk to them. You go outside of yourself. Like John doesn't sit there and ponder like, 
well, maybe, maybe I just didn't really believe in Jesus or maybe it just didn't, maybe it doesn't make sense, you know? He goes to Jesus and he says, are you the guy? Like, tell me, are you the guy? And this is the way that dealing with our doubts should always work. We should just get, there's a, a good book that I'm gonna recommend to you. Short book, super easy to read. It's written by a young guy named Shelby Abbott and it's called Doubtless. And it talks about grappling with your doubts, grappling with, uh, you know, doubting Christianity. And he basically argues the same thing too. Doubts can be super healthy. They can be super good if you deal with them the right way. And he says, he calls this, he, he encourages us to not give in to morbid obsession with doubt. Like once you start doubting, so I've, like this happens with kids, high school age kids. So, so you know, I, I end up talking to high school age kids quite a bit. And you know, fifth grade, they're like, oh yeah, mom and dad says we're Christian, we're Christian, you know. And then they start getting where they're like, I'm not sure if I believe this stuff or not. I don't know. And then when they get to that point, that's a great spot, by the way, to be. When you get to the spot where you're like, I, I, maybe this isn't true, I don't know. That's, it's a, that's a great jumping off point to learning. But if you go from there to like, oh man, it's super easy to do too because like irony and skepticism is the coin of the realm in our culture. To be like, man, I don't know if I believe that stuff. I just don't know. I've been thinking about it and trying to ponder it. Like avoid the morbid, avoid the morbid curiosity, the morbid obsession and go to the person. I'll give you one more illustration. Basically the same as the first illustration. Like, there have been times in my life with Angela, just like any of, the, any of you who have, you know, a spouse or like a super close friend, where, where you think, like, I, I wonder, are, you know, are, what's wrong? What's going on? Are they just not into me? Or, like, did I irritate them? And again, what I don't want to do is to, like, replay in my mind everything I've done to try and, or maybe, maybe, maybe I don't really feel love in my heart for her. Or maybe she doesn't feel love in What's going on? What I need to do is I need to go and I need to say to Angela, what's up? Because I might doubt whether she loves me or not, but we're still married. It doesn't take away the marriage. Like, that, that's where John the Baptist is at. John the Baptist has a relationship with Jesus. He doubts who Jesus is, but it doesn't change the fact that Jesus is determined to save John the Baptist and has called him his brother and has called him God's child. And so the relationship is the key. Go outside of yourself. Don't go inside of yourself. Go to Jesus. Okay, here's the second thing. Um, he lets Jesus define the terms of success. He lets Jesus define the terms of success. Why does John the Baptist doubt if Jesus is the Messiah? Well, a couple things. One is that he's not fighting Rome, which everybody, John the Baptist included, thought that Jesus was going to beat Rome. Here's the second reason why he doubts that Jesus is the Messiah, though. It's because he's in prison, and he's going to be beheaded shortly. That's not the way it was supposed to work. John the Baptist was Jesus' hype man. John the Baptist, that was, that was the center of his job. He was the guy whose sole job was to say, look, everybody, behold the Lamb of God who's taken away the sins of the world. His whole job was to be the guy who announced, after me is coming the one whose sandal I'm not worthy to unlatch. That was John the Baptist's whole job. He totally bought into Jesus, and now he's in prison, and he's gonna get killed because some teenage girl is gonna dance for her stepfather, turn him on, and as a bribe to satisfy her, he's gonna have John the Baptist's head knocked off. That's how he's gonna die. Wouldn't you doubt where God is at if you're in prison and you know you're about to die? Wouldn't you be like, hey, Jesus, uh, you gonna do something here? He goes to Jesus, but he doesn't say, hey, Mr. Messiah, am I right? I'm here in prison. Like, I know you do big, powerful miracle, miracle stuffs. How about coming here and busting me out, coming down here and busting me out? He doesn't do that. He leaves it open. Are you the one who is to come? He lets Jesus define the terms of success. Look, when I struggle with doubt, frequently it's because I define the terms of success. Like, God, I've prayed, and I've prayed because, you know, my, my car's broken, and I need a new car, and nothing, I just end up driving the lousy same car around because I don't have the money to get a new car. God, I need, I need a promotion at work. I need this if we're gonna financially survive. I pray that, and then the guy in the cubicle over gets the promotion. God, I need you to heal this relationship, and then it just turns even more sour. See, I, by the way, those are good prayers to pray. You should pray those prayers. But if you define the terms of success and 
what do I think Jesus should be doing to exercise his kingdom power? And then it doesn't happen. It creates doubt. And what John the Baptist does is almost certainly guaranteed John the Baptist does not want to be in prison, does not want to get his head chopped off because of some teenage girl. But he gives Jesus the space to do what he wants to do. Are you the one who is to come? Or are we waiting for somebody else? In other words, doubt can be bad. Let me sum this up. I say, doubt can be bad, but it can also drive us to Jesus. Your doubts, I'm not saying that you should want to doubt, but your doubts should drive you to Jesus, especially when you see it relationally, right? If I doubt that Angela loves me, the first pro move is to go to her and say, hey, are we okay? And that, that should be the ground, the, the, the foundation for growing in our relationship. If I think that one of you is upset with me, and I sit there and I worry and I stress about it, I just worry and stress about it. But if I come to you and say, are you upset with me? And you're like, no, I'm not upset with you. We can build on that. Or if you say, yeah, I am upset with you. We can build on that. It can actually be a benefit to our relationship. You doubt Jesus, you doubt God, go to Jesus. Let him, let him create the parameters of what success is. Go to, see what I'm saying now or earlier? I'm not actually answering your doubts. What I'm telling you is how to handle your doubts whenever you do doubt, how we should handle our doubts whenever we do doubt, okay? All right, second thing, the reality of Jesus' kingdom, verses 21 through 22. Look at Jesus' response. John says, are you, the, are you really the guy? And here's Jesus' response. Uh, he heals a bunch of people, casts out a bunch of demons, evil spirits, and uh, gives sight to a bunch of blind people. Then verse 22, he answered the, John's disciples and says, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. Think about all the good, powerful things Jesus has done. All right. He tells John, think about all the mighty works I'm doing. Think about all the blind people I've given sight to. Think about all the times I've proclaimed the gospel to the poor and the marginalized. Think about all the lame people that I've rescued. Think about all the hungry people that I've fed. That's his solution to his doubting. Does anybody here have a problem with that? How's that going to help John? None of that's happening to John. Like, okay, so Jesus, you're powerful enough to do all these mighty deeds, but here I am sitting in prison. See what Jesus is doing? Jesus is saying, look at what God is doing outside of yourself. Now, I know for a fact, there, there are people in here, I'm thinking of one guy in particular, uh, his name's Harry, uh, not little Harry, big Harry, who has been, miraculously healed from stage four pancreatic cancer. Like, uh, you're donezo, the doctor tells him. And then here, 15, 20 years later, I can't remember what it is, Harry. Here's Harry Schlechty walking around. Okay, think about that. How is that possible if Jesus is not Lord? Though some of you are sick and you're praying for God to heal you and you're not gonna get healed right now. To you, God is saying, think about all the great things I've done for other people. It's not just about us. It's about us. It's not just about me. It's about you as well. Think about the mighty works that Jesus has done. Think about the fact that there's a church in Glen Carbon, Illinois, which confesses that a Jewish construction worker from 2,000 years ago on the other side of the world is the king of the universe. How is that possible? Think about all the mighty things God, think about the relationships in this room that God has healed. And some of you are in relationships that haven't been healed and you're like, well, that doesn't help me out. But that's actually the answer that God gives John the Baptist is think about what he has done. Think about the mighty acts that he has done. And here's, here's the key. You have to say no to your own reality. Sometimes your own reality is a certain way, you know, it's like bad, it's not working out. The, the prayers aren't getting answered according to our parameters, Right? And God says, no, stop looking at your own situation for a second and look at how I've worked powerfully over here and let that be your reality. That's what Jesus is, Jesus is talking to a guy in prison on death row and saying, you know what ultimate reality is? It's not your prison experience. It's all these blind people getting their sight back. It's all these people being healed. Let that be the, let be, let that be the capital R reality. Why does he say that? It's because we're transitioning now out of this world over here where there's blindness and relational brokenness and poverty and racism, we're transitioning over here to the new creation that Jesus is building by the power of his death and resurrection. That's the real reality. The things that, the, 
the things that a lot of us are going through right now are fake. I don't mean that they're not real. I'm not, I don't mean that you shouldn't mourn. I don't mean that you shouldn't work hard to fix them. I'm just saying it's not your destiny. Now, I, don't know how, I don't know what that's going to look like. I, I don't know how God's going to fix that. But the ultimate capital R reality is that Jesus is at work to fix things. It, it, you, you just got to hang your hat on that. And that's what he tells John the Baptist to do. The kingdom is at work. God is doing amazing things. You have to live in that reality. You have to live in that reality. I could give you a bunch of examples here. I, I gave some more examples to the, uh, uh, to the first service. Oh, I'll, I'll do this one. I'll do this one right here. Uh, oh, let me do, pick a good one here. I try to save time. Um, Angel and I were trying to have, maybe I've told some of you this story before. Angel and I tried to have kids for a long time. We've been married about seven years, and we wanted to have kids, and we weren't having kids. For, for those of you who struggle with infertility, like, this will connect with you. If you haven't, you'll be like, blah, blah, blah. J- just hang in and, and, and be gracious to me. Angel and I struggled to have kids for a long time before uh, God gave us Harry, and then Kate, and then Reeve. And we've been trying to have kids for about three years. And my sister, who's younger than me, got married to a guy who's older than her, and they decided we want to have kids pretty soon. And they had been married two months, and she got pregnant. And I got to tell you, like, I was real ticked off at her and real ticked off at God for doing this. This is something that I prayed for. And why not? I mean, kids are, why why wouldn't I want kids? How is that a bad prayer? God, give Angela and I kids. And in that moment, what God was calling me to do, I'm not saying that I was in prison about to be beheaded. That's way over dramatic. You know, I picked a smaller one here. because This happens all the time in every little tiny circumstance, not just big health circumstances. What God wanted me to do was be grateful for the miracle he was working in my sister's womb. He wanted me to see that as capital R reality. And my heartache as the small lowercase r reality this isn't about the fact that we eventually had, and then we eventually had kids and everything. That's not what that's about. Maybe we would never have had kids, but it didn't change the fact that God is the life-giving God and I was called to rejoice in that and let my sister's joy be my ultimate reality and not to be consumed with my own, why isn't it working for me? Why can't you get me out of jail? You can heal blind people, you can feed 5,000, you can calm storms, you could probably bust this lock open. That's where I was at. And I struggled with that for a long time. And actually, I, to be honest, I'll just be frank with you. If God hadn't given me Harry, I'm not telling you that I would have gotten victory over that either. Because that's not the way I am. I'm usually too self-obsessed for that sort of thing. But to live in the reality of what God is doing powerfully for other people and to latch onto that as your ultimate reality and say, okay, maybe it's not happening in my life right now. Maybe it will in a couple months, in a couple years, whatever. Right now, I can see God at work in their life, and I'm not going to let my obsession with my own bad circumstances keep me from rejoicing in the kingdom of God at work here. Let that heal your doubts. Last thing, and then we'll be done. This is the biggest thing. Weird last verse here. Jesus is a little bit of a shot across the bow at John the Baptist. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me, he says in verse 23. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, what does, he, what does he mean by this? Basically implying, John the Baptist, be careful. Be, now, let me say this. Snapchat culture, the word offended doesn't mean the same thing that it would mean for, for them. The, the word offended for us just usually means some sort of negative emotional reaction to somebody doing or saying something that we don't like. For them, though, the word is actually, uh, it's a word that's pretty common in the New Testament, and frequently it's translated stumbling block. It's the word, it's the Greek word scandalon. We get the word scandal from it. And not in like, a, like a, a juicy scandal, but like in the sense of scandalized. Like I'm just so, sh- I can't get past this. I just can't get past it. Don't let Jesus become a stumbling block. Well, how does Jesus become a stumbling block? Well, for John the Baptist, it was he wanted a certain thing. Probably to be out of prison. Probably for Rome to get beat. And Jesus wasn't doing it. Don't stumble over that John the Baptist. Hold on to Jesus. He's got bigger and different plans than getting you out of prison. As harsh as that might sound, don't stumble. I'll give you the best example, and I quote this text in here probably once a month, so it's, you, some of you have heard it before. 1 Corinthians 1, 22 and 23, 22 through 24 actually. Um, best example of this word, uh, uh, 
uh, stumbling block or offense here. For Jews, Paul's, Paul's talking about the way that Jews see the gospel, the way that Greeks see the gospel, but what the gospel really means is this. He says this, for Jews demand signs. The Jews want power, some act of power that's going to like show that whoever's doing the act is like God-ordained. The Greeks seek wisdom. The Greeks want philosophy. These are the people of Socrates and Aristotle and Plato. They want wisdom. They want knowledge. Teach us some deep intellectual things. But Paul says, I preach Christ crucified. That's what you get from me. Not the powerful Jesus doing mighty deeds. Not the wise Jesus with the, the, the witty and in-depth aphorisms flowing out of his mouth. I'm going to give you Christ crucified. And here's what he says about it. Christ crucified, a stumbling block. And he uses the exact same word that he uses in our text. A stumbling block to Jews. What does he mean, a stumbling block to Jews? And folly to Gentiles, he goes on. How is it a stumbling block to How is Jesus crucified a stumbling block to Jews? Well, same reason it's a stumbling block to John the Baptist. I want you to fix my problems. God gave you power. Like, take care of me. That's a stumbling block. I can't believe in a Jesus who's not fixing my problems. And Jesus says, don't be offended at me. And he's using this word technically because he wants you to know that when he is crucified and hanging on a tree, that's his real business. That's what he really came for. Healing the blind, those are side effects. Little taste of, you know, in the current time, God heals Harry. Pancreatic cancer. Harry's going to die eventually. Why did God heal Harry of pancreatic cancer? If the question is, why does God heal Harry, but he doesn't heal me, I don't know the answer to that. I do know why he heals Harry, because he wants us to get a foretaste of the new creation now, where God snaps his fingers and all cancer goes away. And he wants you to know that, that he can do that whenever he wants. And right now he's holding off for reasons that he's not allowed us to be privy to. But hold on to him. Do not be scandalized by him because by the power of the cross, by the power of the resurrection, it's all going to happen eventually. Do not stumble over that. Go to the cross. John the Baptist suffering. You're suffering. It's not meaningless. It's actually what the God of the universe came to do. Don't stumble over the suffering of Jesus. Whenever you suffer, you are no, you, you are never closer to the heart of God on the cross of Jesus Christ than you are when you suffer. It's not when you get the great medical diagnosis. It's not when God heals your relationships. It's not when you get the raise. It's not when everybody realizes that, yes, you're the one who's making this office run. That's not the high moment of your life. The high moment is when you are connected to the cross of Jesus Christ. And when you suffer like John the Baptist did, God is somehow mysteriously making the power of the cross become embodied and enfleshed right here in Glen Carbon. That's how the kingdom's gonna grow. When the crucified Jesus lives here in Glen Carbon through the suffering of his people, don't stumble on it. Take your doubts to him. Take your doubts to the foot of the cross. Filter your doubts through this paradigm of kingdom power, the kingdom power especially of the cross. And live, live constantly in the hope that he's going to make all things new. Stand with me and let's pray, and then we'll have communion. Let's pray. God, thank you for loving us, and thank you for being good to us. And Father, help us, help us to trust you enough to let you, set the, uh, let, let, let you set the standards for what is success and not. God, we want your kingdom to come, and we freely confess that we have no clue what that's going to look like in detail. Sick people healed, blind people with sight back, marginalized people included in community, dying of cancer, suffering through loneliness, all of those things, Father. Will you work the power of your son's cross here so that through, in our, through our suffering and through our rejoicing that all of it we may see your kingdom grow in our lives individually and in the life of our church and in the life of our community. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we pray especially for uh, all those who are struggling with uh, the bad side of this, the bad side of the Venn diagram, the, the brokenness and the wondering what to pray for. And honestly, God, sometimes wondering if you even hear us. For, for all of us who are, who are in that moment, Father, will you give us your grace? Will you work your gospel power in us so that we see that no matter whether we're suffering, actually even especially as we're suffering or we're rejoicing that you are present with us 
and that you are working out your goodwill in our lives. We need you so bad, Father, through physical sickness and mental sickness and relational sickness and financial sickness. Will you be with all those especially who are suffering um, after the storms this past week? Will you give comfort and hope to those who, uh, uh, the families of those who have, uh, especially those who have died, but also those who have lost uh, homes and livelihoods? Father, will you allow the matrix of your crucified son to be the lens through which we see events like this? And may it draw us closer to you. May we gain our hope and our trust and our comfort through you. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we pray these things only because you've united yourself to, you've, you've united us to your son, Jesus Christ, and have brought us into his throne room. And now you call us your sons and daughters. And so here we are asking you to answer these prayers, Father. Show us your kingdom. Make your kingdom real here. We pray this by the power of your Holy Spirit and in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Let's confess our faith with the words of the Apostles' Creed. This is in your bulletin. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now let's pray together in Jesus' name, the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks... He gave it to them saying, drink of it all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.
Now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people to be a light to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of your people Israel. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious unto you. Lord, lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Take a, a few minute break here, then uh, let those of you who don't want to be here uh, take off and then uh, members come back and, uh, for the business meeting. All right, see you guys later.